Welcome to the 13th installment of the Known Pleasures podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. Now, before we get started, I'd just like to let everyone know that if you'd like to hear today's featured tracks in full, you just have to click on the link under the podcast and it will take you to a special Spotify playlist made just for this episode. Now, here's Mark to introduce today's band. The Clash, perhaps more than any other of the rest of the infamous class of 77, seemed to be looking for a way out of punk almost from the very start. Including a reggae cover on their April 1977 debut album was a bold move for the London band, who along with other prime movers, the Sex Pistols, the Damned and the Buzzcocks, completely personified what punk meant at that time. Fast, loud, snotty and perhaps most notably very, very white. However, for a band synonymous with punk's first flush, they were more musically curious than perhaps they're given credit for. Forming in London in 1976 in direct response to seeing the Pistols live, the band had of course long been exposed to the capital's immigrant West Indian and Jamaican culture. So perhaps it wasn't so odd that reggae should chime with them. What was odd was the speed at which the self-styled last gang in town jettisoned what was considered real punk and just how quickly they embraced the diverse sounds of rockabilly, dub, funk and even rap as well as the rock of their roots. Over the course of five albums they continued to seek new directions, building and challenging their audience with each successive LP until the commercial peak of the final proper album, 1982's Combat Rock. In an era where it felt like music could actually change the world, The Clash set about making themselves the only band that mattered, and for many of their legions of fans, this was undoubtedly true. Songs had to mean something, each successive album had to be more inventive than the last, and following The Clash felt like a calling in itself. But for musical innovation alone, no band since has fought the law and won like The Clash. I like that. Hmm. I think it sums it up nicely. Because a lot of people would say, why are we talking about The Clash in a post-punk context? Hmm. And it's a fair question because they are a punk band, ideally, I suppose, to most yeah, people. Yeah, they, they were part of the, the first wave, the first Absolutely. guard. Well, it doesn't get much more original than those guys. Hmm. But as I said in the intro, I think they kind of had an eye on moving on pretty quickly. Hmm. Hmm. And things moved really quickly in those days. They did. And by January 1978, the Sex Pistols had broken up. And the clash were left kind of as the standard bearers. Indeed. London's burning! London's burning! With all the pressure that that entailed. So it was a really interesting time for them going into this, uh, recording the second album or Mm. planning to record the second album with a single or two prior to that point. And, of course, they had a um, seminal debut album to follow up, mm-hmm. which was no easy feat. Yeah, and it had been successful. I think it was a top 20 hit in the UK with that one reggae cover. Police and Thieves, Junior Mervyn. Police and Thieves in the street. Oh, yeah. Um, so that we, uh, we're talking about Give Them Enough Rope at this point, the second album. Yes, yes. So the first album was, was pretty rough. Mm. Um, Production-wise. Pretty much self-produced. I think their live sound guy did did the album for them. Uh, the record company was quite keen to get Sandy Perlman. Yes. On oh, he's the, the Blue Oyster Cult guy, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, which was a strange move, but I think they pretty much wanted wanted some hits. Or, or more radio-friendly sound, yeah, I think, yeah. was the term. But this was CBS we're talking about, yeah. record company. Pretty pretty big company in those days, and they'd given The Clash a pretty large advance of $100,000 or something like that, or pounds or whatever it was, a lot of money. Wow. Mm. But and Sandy, Sandy Perlman was just a regular guy. He put his trousers on one leg at a time like everybody else. Right. That regular. Mm. I don't think people did do that in those days. I think they put them on with the mm. bondage trousers anyway. It was a little mm. difficult to do that. 
I think this was the guy who actually recorded Don't Fear the Reaper. So he put more cowbell into the clash. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the slogan, actually, <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the album, second album. So, yes, there were issues, perhaps, with um, having a fairly rock and roll producer mm. on board. Credibility-wise, I guess, credibility was everything. In 1978, credibility. And as you said, they were the, la- the last gang in town, the punk standard bearers, pistols had gone, it's all about the clash. And uh, the they were one of the most credibility-conscious bands on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, well, yeah. It was important to them, you know. Um, they had a real connection with left-wing politics, I suppose, mm. Mm. Uh, working-class politics, and that was a time when you had to align yourself with, with certain things. You were either for things or against things, and the clash were definitely, you know, came from that background. Tried, I always think they tried to have a bit of a 60s sensibility yeah. about what was right and what was wrong, you know, and, and the second yeah, album, yeah. going with a guy like this and trying to clean up the sound and sell it to America kind of goes against what they were trying to stand for, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. What was the first single? Tommy Gun. Tommy Gun, I think, was the first yeah. single off that album. Um, but it is very slick sounding compared to the first album. Mm. The first album's pretty rough, pretty rock and roll and pretty much like their, um, their live shows. Mm. Uh, whereas Give Them Enough Rope, which was released in, uh, where was it, November 78, is pretty slick in comparison. Mm. It's actually the first Clash record that I bought. Yeah, I, I remember hearing it. Uh, maybe a year or so after it came out when I was like 15, 16 or so. Hmm. And I loved the first three tracks. And to me they all seemed like, uh, was it Safe European Home, yeah. uh, English Civil War and uh, Tommy Gun. Yeah. And they all were like just great pop rock songs. Mm-hmm. So I was big on melody and not very big on kind of dis- discordant sort of stuff. And they really appealed to me. And, and that album always felt to me like the three hit singles, even though none of them were hits, mm-hmm. um, and the rest of the album, which I could kind of take or leave. Right. So you were happy The Clash had sold out? That's, I was depending <laughs> on it. <laughs> I reckon you did hear that not that long after. I bought it in 79 because mm. um, I remember buying it from our friends at Oregon Records. In Ballarat? In Ballarat and listening yeah. to it in the caravan I was living in at the time. Yes. Well, not living in, but staying in with yeah. my yeah. One of those little mini record players and playing Give yes. Me Enough Rope over and over again. Your mum must have loved oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a big caravan, I should mention that. Not big enough to contain the clash. <laughs> I, I think I must have heard your copy. Oh, you would have. Mm. Well, we were friends then. So yeah, that's there's, right. We were. There's, there's every chance that I bludgeoned you <laughs> to death with it. Almost as much as your poor old mother. Yes. Patrick, you've got to listen to this. Yes. <laughs> Known as the Caravan of Death. Caravan in of parts Death. Parts of Ballarat. Yeah. Um, so, but the album was a hit. So the Clash were kind of proven, well, I don't know, what were they proven, right or wrong yeah, on that one? Yeah, well, I mean, the, they didn't have any top ten hits, so that was good for their credibility. Yes, but the album was a top ten hit, mm, in the mm. UK at least. Yeah. It's interesting in terms of how we talk about post-punk and the interesting directions that, that music was about to head in, mm. it's not an especially interesting album. It's no. just a pretty solid alternative rock kind of record, I think. Well, the reason why we're talking about them today is that uh, whilst those first two albums were traditional punk albums, um, a lot of other bands continued playing the same thing, yeah. whereas The Clash mm. made a conscious effort to break away from that formula. I think you can see signs in both those albums of them trying to do more interesting things or not to be constrained anyway by mm-hmm. the music. And don't forget they did release a lot of singles that weren't on the albums as well, like White Man in the Hammersmith Palais. Mm. Midnight, just 
the influences are there pretty early on. But yeah, I mean, it, those two albums are, are kind of pointers, I suppose, to what, what's going to come next. And they weren't, well, there wasn't a post-punk context in those days. There was, as we often say, there was just new wave music, anything mm. that was kind of vaguely considered that. And the, they'd fall into that as well. Mm. But they also showed that they weren't interested in the constraints of punk. I mean, they showed no. that uh, with the, the Junior Mervyn cover and they showed it with a song like Julie's Been Working for the Drug Squad. Indeed. Which was very kind of almost sort of pub rockish in yeah. a way, but it was it was like we'll play the kind of music we want to play. And in terms of Joe Strummer's background, which is quite hippie-ish Yeah, and we quite should talk about of, that, yeah. yeah well, he was a bit older too, rock. wasn't he? He was older than the rest of them. Mm, yeah. And he had to, I mean, you were saying he had to hide his age and hide his background. Mm. Um, he came from quite a, was it a well-to-do family? or, or I think a well-travelled family. I think his yeah. father was a diplomat or something Yeah, like it was a, he was a foreign service diplomat. Yeah, so he lived so, in a lot of different places yeah, he, and he, he, he well-educated. As a boy, uh, his family lived in um, Turkey, Egypt, Mexico and Germany but he actually went to boarding school at the age of nine mm. and hardly saw his parents for years after that. So he, he was private school or public school educated, certainly relatively posh by punk standards mm. and he also had the misfortune in punk terms to take on the nickname Woody. When he was a busker. <laughs> because he was a Woody Allen fan? I think Woody Guthrie was the reference point. Oh, but yeah, yeah, Woody Allen's good enough. <laughs> yeah. So he was a long-haired hippie named Woody in a past life and he went to great lengths to uh, Quash ditch that? some of, you know, like the um, inconvenient truths yeah. from, from his past. Well, I mean, the, the Clash were formed after seeing the Sex Pistols and going, well, this is it. This is over what we've been doing. Yeah. They're individual efforts. This is the way things are going. It's that classic cut your hair, throw everything out and start again. Well, his band, what, the, the 101 101ers, had supported Sex Pistols? Other way around. Oh. Sex Pistols were the support to the 101ers. Wow. And he wandered out and had, had a look and in his own words said, this is the future of music, you know, I've just got to completely trash everything I've been doing and start again. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And then he was, he was drafted into this sort of... Um, this new group, which um, Mick Jones was, was putting together as a response to the Sex Pistols. Yep. They were going to be the new Pistols, or bigger than the Pistols, apparently. Yep. That was yep. the idea. Although Mick Jones had his own skeletons in the closet with bands like Mott the Hoople and... He'd been around kind for of glam, a ...kind of glam stuff. Yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah. he was younger than, than, than Joe mm. Strummer was. Or, um, yeah, a couple of years younger. Yeah, yeah. But he um, had been trying to get to something together along these lines, I think, before, but they just didn't have a singer. And he was a big fan of one of your favourite bands, Graham, the New York Dolls. They rear their head again. <laughs> the New York Dolls. You love those I, guys. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> no, look, you've got to put things into context. They would have seemed pretty outrageous and pretty out oh, there as a rebellious gesture in the, in the mid-'70s. Like, the New York Dolls were more outrageous than the glam bands, I suppose, yeah. around them at mm-hmm. the time. In the way that Bowie was outrageous and seemed to strike a chord in England mm. in a big way, those guys that were right out there. You can't imagine England in the early to mid-70s with these platform heels, mm. makeup, bisexual bands, yeah, whatever, yeah, and that yeah. seemed to be a big thing in all these kind of country towns. You'd have these legions of Bowie <laughs> and New York Doll fans. It's so, so strange. Yeah, yeah. Morrissey, Morrissey was a big New York Dolls fan. Yeah, yeah. Anyone that sort of was involved in punk and post-punk seems to be, those three bands seem to be the constant reference points. So we've given enough rope out there and having done well. Well, I was going to say, you've just told me where you first came across it. I've just oh, said yes. it was my first album that I bought. What about yourself, Graham? Were you aware of The Clash being a few years older than us and hanging around with a few Brisbane well, punks? <laughs> Brisbane punks. Yeah. Well, I hate to bring up the uh, the Saturday morning music shows again. but <laughs> the, Where would you be without them? I, I don't know. Well, this, 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 was, this was where I discovered these things. And I was actually with the two uh, notorious Brisbane punks that I knew at the time at their house. and um, They lived in a house or a squat? 
No, oh. they live with their parents. They, live with their they parents. weren't that notorious. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and they had to keep the music down. Yes. <laughs> After you've done your homework. Yes. <laughs> their family were quite well to do as well. Yes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ruining their... The story's their... unravelling at a rapid pace. <laughs> I'm Hunk ruining their fraud. reputation. <laughs> God, I hope they never listen to this. But yeah, it was on one of those Saturday morning music shows. They played, I think it was uh, White Riot. Followed that, I think, with uh, The Damned playing Neat, Neat, Neat. White right from the first album. Yeah, so... Um, so this is quite early. This would have been 1977. So at the time, I borrowed that first album from uh, some friends of mine, but I never actually had the second album. Um, I knew the singles, and I eventually bought London Calling when it came out, but, um, yeah, I, I never had that second album. There you go. I'm one up on you on that yeah, one. Yeah. Mm. So I, I guess in the context of what we, we are talking about, which is post-punk, we're going to put the first two albums together and kind of say they're, they're a jumping-off point mm. For, mm. for The Clash to go somewhere else yeah. in that era. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And with their next album, which has come to be regarded as something of a classic. I think you'd find most people, fans or otherwise, would call London Calling, 1979's London Calling, uh, yep. as their greatest album and in the top whatever of all-time great albums. It's certainly called. often regarded double as, album? as that, yeah. A bit unpunk mm, to release yeah. a double album. There may be dissenters in the room about whether it's a classic double album. Well, my dissension comes from, um, well, first of all, the title track of London Calling still gives me shivers when I hear it now. I just think it's a classic song. In a good way. In a good way. And um, <laughs> the guitar's out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember the film clip. Uh, of course, yeah. But at the very beginning, uh, Paul, Joe and Mick are playing the intro and they all turn and hit the microphones in unison and start singing. London calling to the faraway towns Now war is declared and battle come down London calling to the underworld Come out of the cupboard and I've always really, I don't know why, but I've always really loved that moment. Um, but uh, getting back to my dissension, I have never been a fan of rockabilly. And there's a few songs on London Calling which hark back to 50s rockabilly, yeah. which kind of grates me a, a bit. Like there's songs on London Calling I really love, but there's a few that I kind of skip over. What's the second The second song in particular is, is a very... Uh, brand New Cadillac? Yeah, Brand New Cadillac. Isn't one of my favourites. What about Hateful? That's that's a that's pretty rockabilly. Yeah, yeah, that one, that one as well. There's a bit of everything on this album. Though. Like this is when they really open up and mm. go, yeah. you know what, we're going to do whatever we want. Now. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because there was a bit of a, I don't know whether you guys remember this. There was a bit of a rockabilly revival in the early eighties. Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, well, it was a kind of a fifties thing, you know. Yeah, there was a fifties thing. That, there was uh, people used to call it punkabilly or something. Psychobilly. Uh, psychobilly. Yeah. There was a lot and of there was the cramps. Um, Stray Cats. Um, yeah. and there was a big thing in Brisbane with yeah, that in yeah, particular the, at the time. I, there was I a couple that. of Brisbane bands who played Rockabilly. Mm. And, yeah, to me that was always like a step backwards and that's why I didn't latch onto that. Uh, yeah. On the whole, I did like the album. Yeah. And as I said, London Calling, Train in Vain. Train in Vain is great. Lost in the Supermarket, you'd like that one. Yes, because mm. I'm regularly lost in supermarkets. <laughs> 
<laughs> I really like Clampdown, um, yep. Guns of Brixton. Guns yeah, of Brixton. the song that um, Paul Simonon sings? Yes, yeah. wrote and sang. And it was later sampled by Beats International Beats for International, a huge yeah. hit, Just Be Good To Me. Great bass line. Yeah, yeah. This album, I think the reason you're talking about it in those terms, Graham, is, is it came out and it was a success in this country. It was a hit. We weren't used to seeing The Clash on television and on the and hearing them on the radio, on commercial radio. And it's a weird song, London Calling. It's not yes. immediately... Do we talk about this? It doesn't sort of have a chorus as such. And it's it's like, a, of, like a chant. It's kind of a martial kind of beat. And, you know, mm. it's not what I would have thought would be a hit, but there's something about it. It's kind of unstoppable. Mm. And, it, and it has that Clash kind of call to arms thing that they're, that they're good at or were good at. Just in terms of unforgettable kind of lines like phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust, which mm. is like a real call to this generation or, you know, this yeah. generation as it was mm. at the time. Well, that's, that was the clash. I was talking about this earlier with you that it was really important that, that bands kind of stood for something or the music meant something. Mm. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm an old fogey, but it doesn't seem as important now. Uh, you don't have to align yourself with anything. There's mm. no particular tribes. You don't believe in this or that because you listen to this band. Whereas The Clash, you had to. It wasn't a choice. Mm. You, you knew people that liked The Clash would like the same things as you or, or maybe... But, yeah, and they were the self-styled only band that matters. Yeah, well, that, if you call yourself that, um, <laughs> then, you know, you are setting yourself up for that. And, I, and the, the edge of U2 later said that The Clash were the blueprint for, for what U2 mm. wanted to be. You know, and you can sort of see that, the kind of standing up for, you know, what's right and, you know, the mm. little guy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how much of that is actually true with you yeah. two, but that's the idea. And The Clash, with this album in particular, you know, it was all about politics. It was all about mm. race. It was all about, you know, living in England at that time, which was pretty rough. I think Margaret Thatcher had been elected by then. England was in a pretty yep. poor state in the late 70s. And uh, the album even survived the eccentric recording techniques of uh, Guy Stevens, mm. who was a pretty dishevelled kind of drunken guy who was apparently so out of control that during one session he thought a particular keyboard would sound better if it had a bottle of red wine poured all over it. So, <laughs> so that's what he did. And did and, it sound better? Um, no, it took a year to repair. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they somehow <laughs> survived that. But um, what, what had Guy Stevens done before that that got him on board? That's a good question. I knew I knew his name, mm. and I'd be lying if I told you that I knew why mm. they got him involved. Yeah, but I yeah. think they had more say in this one. Yeah. Um, he was the the husband on Bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we need to know. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. The first or second? I don't know. Um, hang on a minute. He's dead. Yeah. Well, death, death and legacy. Hmm. While I'm stalling, I can tell you. Okay. While we're stalling, well, I can tell you. Graham's not even on the microphone <laughs> at this point. He's, he's off I can, in the I can tell you that um, the Clash's Cost of Living EP, mm -hmm. which featured I Fought the Law, yep. that came out in May 79, yep. so six months, seven months before the, um, London Calling, yep. that EP was released on the day of the... Um, election at which Thatcher came to power. Really? I was living in England at that point. 
You I just left. Or thereabouts. You just left. I do remember that, yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so... I fought the law and the law won. Yes. Great song. Yes. Uh, apparently they heard that in a jukebox in the US while they were recording bits and pieces for London Calling. Right, okay. And decided, hey, that's a great song. Right. It's an old song, it's a cover. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and we should do it. How are you yep. going with Guy Stevens over there, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not, I thought is... they usually give you a list of, of what he's produced. Who's but they? they? You know, they, Wikipedia. <laughs> the world. Them. Them. <laughs> the world. Those people. Yeah. But they, he, like, he was instrumental in the formation of Motta Hoople. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> rega- rega- regarding London Calling. Yes. Uh, I, I would agree with... Graham, in terms of some of the songs being a bit kind of standard, a bit, a bit old hat. So mm. for me, songs like Spanish Bombs, Death or Glory, Four Horsemen are fairly standard kind of rock songs and don't really add much. Given what a revolutionary album London Calling is often regarded as, even though it's quite eclectic, I feel like a lot of the times when they're doing these styles of music, they're not really adding very much to it, like whether it's rockabilly or rock. I think they're just regurgitating. Or, or jazz, like the J- mm. Jimmy Jazz, for instance. It's a pretty standard kind of sound that they bring to to the song Jimmy Jazz, for instance. Mm. So I think the eclectic nature of the album I really like and it's got some fantastic songs on it, which which we've already talked about. But, but overall, I think it feels to me as if it is overrated. Really? And, yeah. So, so in, in terms of, of the great double albums, mm. where would you put it? Above Out of the Blue by ELO? <laughs> I think, I think, well, Mr. Call. Mr. Blue Sky. Great song. You know. <laughs> You're affecting our post-punk credibility by talking about ELO, <laughs> by the way. Well, I'm just talking about great double albums. Well, I can't get past the cover. Kiss Alive? Kiss Alive. Frampton, so Frampton Comes Alive? The cover of was the that ELO a double album. album? No. You're not going to get a better album cover than, than Out true. of the Blue. It was. It was Gatefold um, Sleeve from absolutely, memory. Absolutely, yeah. So, but anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. <laughs> look, look I, I'm going to say that London Calling's not overrated because of when it came out. And it's easy. easy. It's certainly really brave. Yeah. Hmm. It's certainly easy now to look back at it and go, well, it's a bit of this and a bit of that. But you've got to remember, this is The Clash. There are no more Sex Pistols. They're, 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 yeah, they're the yeah, punk yeah. band that everyone's looking mm, to. Absolutely. They're in the music papers. They're standing for this and that and the rights mm. of workers and, and anti-racists. And, and, you know, so what they say and what they do is important. They come out with an album that's ambitious. Yeah, It would be yeah, really yeah. easy just to do sort of yeah. flag-waving songs. Yeah. You know, and I don't think they did that. I think they really put themselves out there with that album. Mm. And I think they largely, largely succeeded and probably put themselves on the map. As, well, they'd, as they'd certainly decided that they had zero interest in punk and what mm. people in the UK said about them and they were absolutely going to do what they wanted. And so it was in some ways a kind of a backwards-looking record with kind of rock influences and jazz influences. And, but it's and still the, a lot of dub and, and a lot yeah, of yeah, you know, other uh, stuff yeah, too. And, 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 and rockabilly influences. But, mm. I mean, for instance, the fact that when they did a US tour around that time, they got Bo Diddley to support them right. you know, rather than, say, Blondie or, uh, you know, the, the Dictators or, or any other B band. Mm. Yeah. But I think that's a really kind of brave thing to do because they were influenced by the stuff they were influenced by, mm. as in your Bo Diddley's and jazz and reggae and so on, and they, they were just going to do whatever the hell they wanted, mm. which leads us to Sandinista. Well, I was yeah. just going to say before we go into Sandinista... Um you guys are ruining my links in this podcast, by the way. I did a great one for London Calling, <laughs> a great one here, and, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know Mickey Gallagher. I'm a big fan of Mickey Gallagher's. Uh, he's from Ian Drury and the Blockheads, and he actually played keyboards for The Clash on their London Calling American tour. And he's a brilliant keyboard player, and um, he 
went on to co-write uh, one of the songs on Santa Nista. Well, there is an Ian Jury and the Blockheads connection on that album yeah, as yeah. well, uh, which we'll talk about when we actually start talking about that album, which I think is coming Isn't up in a moment. <laughs> <Which is even, laughs> if, if only someone would do a nice link to get us to Santa Nista. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Just so we get December 79, London Calling, double album, couldn't be any more unpunk, couldn't be any more yeah. uncool to do that, but they pull it off. So what do they do for their December 80 album called Sandinista? They go the triple. Triple concept album. Yeah, um, which was pretty controversial at the time. It was. Yeah. It was. No one was having a bar of it. No. I mean, London Calling got rave reviews. Yep. Sandinista, less so. Less so. Um, but, but once again, this is... The Clash, you know, they made sure the album was sold for the price of a single album. Mm. They made CBS in, do that. In, in the UK anyway. Yeah, well, well that's their, their main market, I mm. suppose. Lost a lot of money on it themselves. Was it a single or a double album they got? They, they, they sold it for? It's for, a, for, for a, I think for a single album, from as I remember. I think in okay. Australia it was the same too. Right. My good friend Stephen Walter bought it and he wouldn't have paid the price of a double album, <laughs> I'll tell you right now. <laughs> single album for sure. <laughs> you'll, you'll verify that. Um, but they got in a proper reggae producer yeah. this time. A Mikey Dread. So they once again went, we're just going to do what we want to do. And consequently, some some of the best tracks they ever did are on, on this mm, that's a, I was just going to say, I think Sandinista is their best album. I mean, it's mm. it's it's a lot of work. I mean, mm. it's kind of the album you wouldn't sit down and listen to in one sitting, but you've got... You the, don't have two and a half hours to I spare. I don't have two and a half hours. They've got one of the time. greatest tracks they ever did in the Magnificent Seven, which mm. is the first white rap record... I know there's some contention with mm. Blondie's Rapture, but one that was recorded before... Rapture? Yes, before okay. that, but mm. Rapture was released before it. Was it recorded before the other spoken word song on Santa Nista? The other spoken word song? Who's... You refuse to call rapping. it rap. Who's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm not spoken using word. that... That street jive talk. The street jive. Um, I don't know, but I'm just making comparisons yeah, no, between absolutely. those two songs. And yeah, it's yeah. it's a great song. It's a funky song. It was very much influenced by by the hip-hop, the Sugar Hill Gang, mm. uh, Grandmaster Flash, that, that um, Mick Jones had heard in the States mm. and wanted to try and do uh, and did a great job. The bass line on it is played by the Ian Jury and the Blockheads bass player. Bass player. Yeah, um, because Paul Simonon was indisposed. Norman Watroy. Norman Watroy. It's, yeah. it's, the song's built around that bass line and apparently he, he kind of takes credit for the song and was never really given yeah. any credit for writing it, which is kind of annoying because it's a crack. <laughs> Doesn't sound like Paul Simonon, does it? It's a pretty tricky bass line. I'm sure he could play a version of it, if not mm. exactly note for note. It, it is. It's a great bass line. It's a, it's a yeah, proper yeah. bass player's bass line. Um, I also really like the call up. It's up to you. The funk influences are coming yeah, through yeah, really, yeah. really mm. strongly here. But their own take on it. This is where post-punk gets interesting Interesting because they're trying to play stuff that they're not quite good enough to play, mm. which yeah, is where yeah. you get the interest. Because mm, if yeah. you want to hear Sugar Hill Gang or you want to hear Chic, you go and listen to those mm. guys. Whereas when you hear a white bunch of guys from London trying to play yeah. or, or Sheffield yeah, yeah, or yeah, Manchester, you, create something you get discordant stuff, you get stuff that doesn't quite work, but it gives it that kind of edge and... Um, 
There's some great stuff on there. The call-up had a, a video at the time, and uh, I remember when I first heard that, I thought, this is fantastic. And, and it was before I'd bought Sandinista. I just thought, you know, they'd, they'd really gone up another level mm. yeah, yeah. with that song. But see, they were really open to what was going on. And don't forget, that's December 80. So they were really kind of, the influences that they were listening to were, were quite diverse and they were quite happy to try to do something once again that's not what The Clash are known for. Well, they'd, they'd completely, it seems, stopped listening to European and British music and mm. they were being completely influenced by American culture. And, I mean, they'd spent a lot of time in the States during the previous year or two. Mick Jones' girlfriend, Ellen Foley, lived in the States, so he spent as much time with her as he could. So, Well, they uh, were making inroads to the States. They, were, they always had a bit of a base there in terms yeah, of fans, yeah, yeah. didn't they? Mm. Um, I think their first album was the biggest selling import album of that year even though it wasn't released in the US. Wow. So it was it was the best selling import of, of 1977 in America because wow. they had a base of fans which is interesting because the Pistols never really had that impact. No. no Maybe no. the Clash did because it was a bit more traditional I, I, and a I'm bit still, less confronting. Yeah, I'm still at a loss as to why the Clash got more credibility than the Pistols. Yeah, it's a funny one. I just think they didn't piss off as many people as what the Sex Pistols did. Yeah. I mean, their influence in America, I mean, to this day, like we were talking about Green Day and bands like that. Mm. The first time I ever saw Green Day, the singer anyway, I was just like, there is a Joe Strummer fan. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he's doing all of his moves. He's, you know, the sound well, of it is very much like that. Speaking of, of uh, you know, what Americans think about them, did you see on the Grammy Awards and not long after uh, Joe Strummer died, you know how on those award shows they play the, the montage of all the people who died that year? Mm. They left Joe Strummer till the end uh-huh. and then they had um, Bruce Springsteen, Dave Grohl, Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, play London Calling. And the audience just went nuts. And I remember looking at that thinking, I didn't think they were that big in America. <laughs> I think London Calling was, was a top 20 hit in the US. The, uh, album. the album? Yeah. Uh, t- 27 on yeah, the US Yeah, something charts, like yeah. that, which is, which is a lot of records in America yeah. in those and days. And for a double album. For a double album. So I think every album kind of built and they mm. toured there a lot. I mean, Bruce Springsteen has played London Calling in his live In sets. his live shows, yeah. yeah. So they seem to have a bit of an impact there that no one really realised, strangely. Because, yeah, why them, why not anybody else? Mm. And they weren't doing, you know, easy albums, you know, double albums, triple albums, reggae, you know, rockabilly, punk, pop, all kinds of stuff all over the shop. But they were a fantastic singles band. Yeah, absolutely. So There was was always a few good singles in them and then mm. the extra tracks that they would do off the album, not on the albums. Yeah, Yeah. so, I mean, the the 36 songs on Sandinista, for instance, you know, there are maybe... 10 or 12, which are kind of re- reggae mm. or, or, or dub-based, mm. and they were irrelevant, you know, in terms of chart success yeah. in the US. I mean, you know, I mean, people tolerated the 36 songs <laughs> in general, and as long as Call Up was there, which incidentally I think, Mark, you and I might have requested on uh, Ballarat Radio late one night <laughs> um, on 3CV. I wonder how we went. Uh, it got played. Really? Yeah. Good times. Wow. So, yeah. Back in 1980 or whatever, yeah. so that was uh, that was our contribution to uh, popular culture. Helping in, the uh, clash in uh, <laughs> Western Victoria. Yeah. Well, on the strength of you guys requesting that song, were they then able to tour Australia? Well, they were not. It was immediately. It was delayed. It was delayed. It took it took 12 months for the full effect of Mark's and my request. <laughs> To hit home. Once the money went back, yeah. To seep up to Sydney. Well, that's not far off true. Um, we should also mention Radio Clash 
was yes. a non-album single which came out in November 81. So between the albums, uh, I think you'd say... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another great song. This is Rachel Cash tearing up the seven bells. Which sort of pointed yeah. the way towards, you know, dance music, I suppose. Yeah, they started getting very funky indeed. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're almost... At the last album. Well, Sandinista. Well, you was, still talking it, about Sandinista? Um, was it the last album? Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Paddy's got I something. I think Sandinista is fantastic. All of it? And would you would you like it to be a single album? No, no. I think there are maybe half a dozen songs that I could take or leave. But like? I think what what's one you could you could leave off? Men's Fourth Hill, is that what it's called? It's a particular song played backwards with overdubs. Right. So, you know, it's okay. not... Um, that's pretty out there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you kind of go, okay, that's... that's Enough that, of that. That's kind of interesting, <laughs> but, but not great. So, yeah, that's, that's a, the song Something About England played backwards. Um, Lose This Skin. Don't like it? Well, you know, I could t- take it or leave it. Do you but, think it um, could have been a good double album? Maybe. I Is there any, good, anything between a double I think and a a triple? a good 2.5-er. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But just the... the the audacity of, yeah. of releasing a triple album, I think, is enough to make it almost worthwhile in itself because mm. it was such a punk thing to do, such a genuinely punk thing to do to release a triple album. Yeah, in a way, uh, yeah. In this way. Um, and, and this is still 1980, so it's still, you know, in a very short space of time. Yeah, mm. yeah. And everyone hated the album. Um, my brother bought it, I think, and I tried to listen to it and didn't like it one bit just because it was, I mean, the nature of, of vinyl, you know, with six lots of six <laughs> you songs. You had to turn the album over several yeah, times. You needed three turntables. <laughs> mm, that's right. And, you know, there were some fairly extended, fairly meandering, you know, dub tracks, which mm. I like that kind of music, but um, I didn't love it. Mm. So to have many songs along those lines, <laughs> uh, which, and, and I, I like them a lot more now. So I'm just going to say also Washington Bullets and Lightning Strikes. Mm. Uh, Two particular tracks of mine that I really like, mm-hmm. and I really liked the imagery associated with it, the whole. We haven't really talked about you know the whole Sandinista thing and the whole the backstory, I suppose, to what you know the, the revolution in um, Nicaragua. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. The Sandinista rebels had had overthrown the U.S. backed government run mm-hmm. by a fellow called Somoza. That's right. And Not to uh, be confused with the tasty treat. No. No, <laughs> a mistake made by Reagan, unfortunately, in was subsequent it, months, causing Oliver North involved. In yes. This? Oh, was this the whole Oliver North thing? Mm, the uh, con- the con- contra gate. The contra. Yeah. The, mm, yeah. Was, so was... That, that that was all connected. But the the Sandinistas, I think, had been in power for a few months when the album came out. Mm. So that was all very much in the. Well, maybe they were they were recording it. Well, yeah. well it was topical in the months it was after. At the yeah. Time. yeah. yeah. So, so to do a triple album that's talking about an issue like this, yeah, I don't yeah. think people do that anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Not even you, U2s. And the the imagery of the band was was really strong. I mean, the, mm. the, the kind of military sort of stuff though they, mm. they wore in the call up film yes, clip, yes, yeah, which and, and I think they did the cover artwork the same evening. So I think they're more or less wearing the same stuff. Well, look, Paul Simonon was heavily involved in their their mm. styling and their look from the very beginning. Yeah, well, he um, was he was a proper kind of art school. He was guy. An, he was an artist now. He doesn't do music anymore. He's pretty mm. much given that away these days. But yeah, he was some behind the paint spattered Jackson Pollock sort of style uniforms that they had. Like they were really aware of how important their image was even then because you're competing with the Sex Pistols. Mm. So you've got to have a look, and they had they had a great look from day one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yet, right through all of these albums, and 
He was the bass player, for those who don't know who he is. And he always looked amazing. He sort of directed their look and their style and, and the way yep. that they appeared. Mm. And he also smashed his guitar very elegantly uh, yeah. one evening. Uh, That's right, in a, on a US um, gig, I think mm, it was, yeah. Which uh, led to the iconic cover, of, of course, Calling, of London yeah. Calling. Yeah. So are we now at arguably the last album? Well, we are because... You can't you can't talk about anything beyond combat rock really in terms of the clash because there's no band in there anymore. Mm. But um, I'm going to interject before we talk about combat rock, which came out in May '82, because they did tour Australia in February '82, yes, yes. mm, February the twentieth, and they played the Cloudland Ballroom, uh, such as it was in those days, famous venue in Brisbane, subsequently torn down, which we did talk about the other day, Graham, about the whys and wherefores. It's now some lovely apartments, top <laughs> of the hill in Brisbane. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I saw them. people now, yeah, which is good. Yeah, yeah. instead of providing rock and roll venues. <laughs> anyway, I saw them and it was like two hours plus. I was at school, I think. Um, and I don't know why you didn't go, Graham, but you didn't. Uh, to this day, I have no idea why, because as you know, I went and saw... You went and saw anything. Anything, anything yeah. <laughs> anyone who toured. Yeah. And I would love to have seen The Clash. What were you I, doing for a living in um, February 82? Because that might give us a clue. Mm. Was it Lumberyard? No. Pool cleaning? It wasn't pool cleaning or Lumbiad. I think by that time I was well and truly entrenched in liquor stores. But um, that'll do it. I, I, <laughs> You're up to your eyeballs in liquor. In liquor. <laughs> but I was a big fan. I have the feeling that there may have been a woman involved. Um, um, there were a few women there, mm. as I yes, recall. Yes, but I, I think I had promised to go out with someone on that evening, on that very evening. Was she aware of this? She, she became aware of it, <laughs> sort of halfway through the date. As you were honking the horn outside her house. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you didn't go. Basically, I didn't go, and I, I regret it to this day. Well, I went, and it was great. Mm. Uh, yeah, they played for probably two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. And, it was, and there were lengthy reggae tracks. Yeah, there were, and it was. It kind of felt like a political rally in some ways. It was a lot. Of, it was a great show. I mean, it was amazing. Every punk that ever there was was there, and a lot of other people that just loved the Clash and loved any kind of new wave were there. And mm. I don't remember who supported them or whatever, but. Um, it was a great show. It was one of those, at last we got to see one of the iconic bands of the of the era, maybe a few years later than, than we liked, but um, they were great and I just remember coming away from that show like being grateful that I was able to see it. And it was probably a school night too, I think, to think of it. You went out on a school went night? Went out on a school night. God. And they played seven shows in Sydney on that tour. Did they? Mm, At the capital, they, they were they were billed as the magnificent seven in the publicity. Oh, very good, for, very clever. And they played one or two in Melbourne. And as a Melbourneian, I was a little, I felt a little slighted by that. And you didn't go either. No, no, no. Because of the whole Sandinista thing. Yeah, I must have had. You sided with the Sandinista. Yeah, well, I, I was probably stuck in a liquor store that night. <laughs> or, so. or dating a woman, or both, <laughs> or both. <laughs> yeah. One of the two, or maybe I disliked Sandinista so much. You were, you were taking a stand. I thought, no, mm. I won't. I'm not going to do it. Well, you both missed out. I'm glad to say I finally got one over you. <laughs> finally got one over me, yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to Combat Rock, which came out in May 1982. Huge hit. Yes. UK number two, US number seven, on the back of Rock the Casbah. Had a big hit single, yeah. Big Rock hit single written by Topper Hedden, written and played mostly by the... Yeah. He 
left by the stage? No, there were problems. Yeah. He had. A, he left shortly after the album came out. He had an alcohol and drug consumption problem in that he was having too much of those things. Mm. <laughs> not, not, not too a, little. Not, usually the problem is not enough of those things. He was yeah. having too much. <laughs> and, um, yeah, one of their most iconic songs, a little bit mm. like The Human Legs, Don't You Want Me, put Rock yeah. the Casbar on at any gathering and you'll, yep. you'll yeah. fill the floor. You'll fill the Aspiring floor. DJs, take my word for that. Had uh, Know Your Rights, which was another single, fantastic song. You have the right. Should I Stay or Should I Go was another single. When yep. I first heard Should I Stay or Should I Go, I thought that was like a cover, a cover of an old song. It is, kind of thing. It's an approximation of... But of they were, Mick Jones wrote it. It's it? an original, but it sounds like anything. Yeah. It's just that chord it just, it thing. Just, yeah, it just yeah, sounded yeah. so familiar. I think the clip for it shows them supporting the Who at Shea Stadium. Which, Which didn't go down well, apparently, with with uh, the audience, the Who audience. Oh, they didn't like the clash. No, they, they, apparently. It's funny because the clip looks like it's their show. It's their show. <laughs> <laughs> they they regularly got booed off stage. Really? By the Who fans? Are you sure they weren't but, just yelling out Who? Who? <laughs> the Who? You could be right. <laughs> Boo <Boo-ons. laughs> I, I think um, even though that was bad for them on the night, apparently the Who tour really raised their profile in America. Well, that would have been why they did. Yeah. yeah. So it was worthwhile doing. Um, we should also mention Overpowered by Funk. Which can... Continued their sort of fascination with kind of yeah. hip hop, funk things, which were the sort of groundbreaking music at the time, and probably you could make a case for being the only groundbreaking revolutionary music since punk. So it's interesting that mm. the Clash aligned themselves with a kind of rebel music. Uh, once punk had run its course, they were really took to rap. Yeah. Nascent rap, anyway, the very early stuff. They were genuine pioneers, weren't they? Well, they were open to anything, and that's what I was sort of mm. trying to allude to in my in my, in my truncated introduction. Yes. <laughs> that they um, kind of would give anything a go. For, for, the, for a band that most people think of as a punk band, as just another punk band, they were kind of anything but that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I said, look, looking at the singles, you know, um, yeah, we should try and play some of those if we can. There's a real variety of styles in there. I mean, a lot of it is dub and reggae, but that was the rebel music of, of the 70s in England mm, too, mm. Um, you know, that culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of the unfortunate things about Rock the Casbah is the politics of the song can be a little bit difficult to um, yes. to interpret. And, and I did see that the song has been voted one of the best conservative rock songs of all songs time. Songs to invade countries. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of, it's one so, of those... You know, right-wing yeah. right websites or right-wing magazines love that song. Mm. Not understanding, I think, the point of the song, which is, you know, it's about... I think it was inspired by the post-Iran revolution in which the clerics tried to ban pop music or certainly d- discourage pop music mm. and it was a kind of a protest from the clash against that or an investigation, a sonic investigation. <laughs> Into that. And, I mean, it's quite a weird and wonderful lyric in that it does contain the line about let the rug drop, which I think was taken from something that Bernie Rhodes, the Clash manager, said about the Sandinista album, that it had way too many raga, reggae, dub kind of songs on mm. it. And, and so I think uh, Joe Strummer's lyric was a playful dig. Right. 
Um, <laughs> apparently it's a track that the um, American pilots would play before they would bomb some <laughs> Middle Eastern countries and uh, that upset Joe Strummer greatly because it's a little bit like Born in the USA for yeah, Springsteen yeah. being appropriated as this kind of right-wing you know, thing where it's not that at all. Yeah, yeah. But, um, mm. Yes, that's what happens. But, yeah, again, it is it is quite a strange album, Com- Combat Rock. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it is their most poppy album. It's the easiest to get into if, yeah, you're, a, yeah. if you're a you know, new fan, I suppose. But there are certainly there's sonic experimentation going on. Mm. There are some weird songs on there too. So it isn't just, you know, one hit after another. No, but you've got those three songs, mm. three singles, Know Your Rights, Should I Stay and Rock the Casbah, pretty solid. Triumvirate. Yes, indeed, yeah. Getting to number seven in the US charts with that album is, you know, pretty... Yeah, it was a big hit here in Australia as well. I remember, mm. you know, it um, it certainly was was out there, and you know, I don't know what what it went to, but it certainly did well yeah. here. Well, uh, Rock the Casbah, I think, got to number three in Australia. A single, wow. yeah, and really weirdly, uh, got to number thirty, I think, in the UK. Right. And how a song like Rock the Casbah only just cracks the top thirty. I mean, what were the other twenty nine songs <laughs> that were more popular than it at its peak? Go straight to hell, boy. Go straight to hell, boy. Maybe they'd fallen out of favour a little bit by that point. Yeah, yeah. They were, you know, this is 82. It's a pretty revolutionary year in pop music. You mm. know, it's the beginning of starting to cheer up a little bit in pop music. We've talked about that. Yeah, like yeah. the post-punk influence is really starting mm. to fade. But I think The Clash only had one top ten hit ever, which was, I think, Should I Stay or Should I Go, about a decade after it was released, when it, when oh, it was yeah. uh, the music for a, uh, like a Levi's commercial or something. They had a oh, lot really? of re-releases yeah, mm. in the years after, yeah. But for, for a band like The Clash not to have a single top ten hit in their you know, lifetime, so to speak, is just extraordinary given, given what great singles they, yeah. they made. Um, so I'm going to say that's their last album. Yes. Uh, in 82. So there's a 77 to 82 time span there yes. of five albums, yeah. five completely different yeah. And very So albums. when you say you're going to say that's the end of it, mm. the reason for that is... Because uh, that's what I'm going to say. But <laughs> the elephant in the room... I feel like you're, you're asking me to say something. The elephant in the room is the last Clash album. Well, which what do you I've define, never even heard. What do you define as a Clash album? Uh, having well, the members Strummer. of the Clash in but, there? Yeah, well, <laughs> called The Clash and yep. the, the album called Cut the Crap. Yeah. And I've never even heard the album. Yeah, and it yeah. completely disappeared without trace. But they, they did have a woeful. single, this, this Is England, I think. I've got to love number 24 or, or so on woeful. the UK singles charts. Mm. And, and I, I couldn't tell you how that song goes. No. So I suppose we're left to ponder the legacy of the band. Well, can we talk about them in two different contexts? How many segues? <laughs> no, but can we talk about I thought them? we were there and... No, but what I want to yes. say is, we, yeah, the, 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 the legacy of them is almost two different legacies is what I'm trying yeah, to get yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because you've got the Google punk bands, do you want to buy a T-shirt? There's the clash. They fit into that really well and they fit into that as they should. Mm. But mm. the far more interesting story about the clash is what happened when they moved on from that. yeah. Which leads to what you were going to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, there's a story in terms of the the, the influence of the band where um, uh, Michael Hutchins of In Excess was in a hotel and Joe Strummer 
saw him you know, surrounded by these mini-skirted teenagers and, 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 and Joe kind of said to Michael, uh, you know, what's it like to be a sex symbol? And, and uh, Joe said, I, I was never a sex symbol, I was just a spokesman for a generation. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that... I thought I mean, he was going to say to him, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> that's <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah, so in terms of, of the impact, the spokesman for a generation or spokespeople for a generation in terms of the, the clash overall is always a tag that they're going to be left with. But I mm. think what, what we've been trying to explore in this podcast is the fact that, that they were much more interesting than that. Mm. Mm. And and that musically they were they were trying to do so much more. Look, they they came out at a time where, as I said in the intro, songs had to mean something, had to be about something, you had to stand for something. Mm. And I don't think we have that anymore. And there's been a few bands here and there, maybe like Rage Against the Machine, and a few bands have tried to do that. But for the most part, pop music isn't important anymore. Mm. In what we what we mean by that, you know, is important to changing people's lives. It's entertainment now, which mm. is fine. It can be entertainment. There's nothing wrong with that. But there hadn't been a band since maybe the '60s bands that tried to do this that that, that meant something. And the Clash mm. really had a go at that, not always successfully. And you know, let's not forget, pop music is entertainment. It's about selling records. But they tried mm. to do both. They tried to stand up for things and stand up for the right things mm. and tried to do some interesting music across that as well, which I think largely they succeeded in doing. Mm. And they're worthy, and a worthy addition to the post-punk kind of list for the moments. Maybe you could compile one album across the five or maybe double album <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, of the things that they tried to do and they stretched themselves into areas that other people weren't interested in doing and, and more power to them for that. Love The Clash. <laughs> 